Um, yeah, good evening. Um, just to say, I, I uh, won't be projecting my voice any more than this because I might lose it because <coughs> I'm just recovering from a chest infection. So if you want to just stand up and move nearer during the talk, if you can't hear, just do that. And we can pretend we're around a campfire or something. So I've got a title for the talk, which is Mindfulness and the Mandala of Integration. And during the talk, Vijabadri, my beautiful assistant here, she's going to read any poems and uh, quotations that I have, which I thought might be lovely to have a different voice and also to save my voice. Uh, but it's a bit of a mixed blessing. Yeah. So Mindfulness and the Mandala of Integration. So, yeah, the purpose of spiritual practice, uh, well, I'm, I imagine there's a whole mandala of purposes of spiritual practice, but um, the way I'm going to put it now, to help us to understand the nature of life, the nature of existence, and then just to be with that, to be with that nature as it is, without wanting to try and change or control it, which you know, is very much what we, unwittingly, we do. Um, so, so uh, we could say that in a way we can't really ever have anything, we can't really ever own anything, although we try to all the time. Uh, we can't even own ourselves in a sense, you might say. <coughs> I know um, the human being is talked of as being a stream of psychophysical energy that just sort of flows through the universe, and yet uh, we're always trying to fix it and control it and be it and be something, be someone. So life slips through our fingers, it can't be held back. There's impermanence, the quality of impermanence, constant uh, change and evolution. And so I was just thinking life, so in a way it's all the more beautiful often for that, for that impermanence, that flow. It's like a wild animal. I was thinking there's the beauty of wildness. Uh, when we try and control something and create beauty, often the beauty is less than just the wild, pure beauty, uncaged, glorious uh, full of power in its naturalness. So uh, Sangrachta has written a, a lovely poem called Life is King, which I thought we'd start by having that poem just as a bring out the more mythic uh, dimension which we're going to be touching into through the mandala of integration through the talk. Uh, so I'll give this boundary. Hour after hour, day after day, we try to grasp the ungraspable, pinpoint the unpredictable. Flowers wither when touched, ice suddenly cracks beneath our feet. Vainly, we try to track bird flight through the sky, trace dumb fish through deep water. Try to anticipate the earned smile, the soft reward. Even try to grasp our own lives. But life slips through our fingers like snow. Life cannot belong to us. We belong to life. Life is king. It's 
So as we come into harmony through our spiritual practice and just general human growth, come into harmony with reality, um, with the knowledge of how things are more and more, those cravings, that the idea is anyway, hopefully, those cravings begin to drop <coughs> away. That need to fix and hold onto things and control things drops and drops away. And the suffering that comes from that also drops away more and more. And so we move then into a greater stage of freedom and expansiveness, no longer at the whims so much of craving, hatred, delusion. And gradually we open to enlightenment, uh, the stage of spontaneous, active compassion. So that was a quick zoom through the spiritual path to enlightenment. Um, and to tread this path to awakening, to, in, to insight, well, we, we need to develop um, and transform ourselves. We need to develop a whole range of human and spiritual qualities. And in particular, um, through the theme of these talks, we need to progress through five stages or phases of spiritual evolution, of spiritual development, uh, these five great stages of the spiritual path. <coughs> <coughs> and last week um, I mentioned that uh, this teaching was given by Sangharachita Bhabhante, our teacher, uh, in 1976, and it seems as though he um, derived it from a teaching, a traditional teaching of the Yogacara uh, uh, system. <coughs> I thought I would do a very brief recap on the path uh, for those of you who weren't here last week. And so we, we could say that the path, this path or any path, begins with where we are now. So that's always very reassuring, I think, to realise that. We haven't got to be someone else or be somewhere else. Uh, so it begins with where we are now, relatively uh, more or less integrated and aware and positive. Um, and that path then takes us. Uh, we take the path through realms of deepening positivity, uh, awareness, insight to the, this endlessly creative st state of enlightenment and the path, the uh, stages that we're going to be looking at uh, well, th the first stage we're looking at today the stage of integration through mindfulness and awareness and then next week I'm going to be giving a talk on the, the next stage which is positive emotional energy which brings in uh, appreciation of beauty and deeper meditation then the stage after that is the stage of the arising of insight, of vision into the nature of reality, which is based on, on that deepening stability and positivity. And following from that unfolds a stage of transformation, spiritual rebirth. We're reborn as our vision more and more. Uh, we transform very, very deeply. And into the final stage, which is this stage of spontaneous, compassionate activity. So we'll be in, into April by the time we gain that stage. I think it's April, yes. <coughs> but tonight we're going to step out on a journey onto the first stage. Uh, and it's quite a big stage, really, this stage of integration through mindfulness and awareness. It's, uh, in fact, I don't think we ever leave that stage. We, even as we keep on uh, deepening into the other stages, we're all, always integrating, integrating more and more deeply and becoming more and more aware uh, as we go. So I'm just going to ask uh, Vijabhadri to read uh, the quotation here uh, of Sangharachita talking, just introducing briefly, as he did, this first stage of mindfulness and awareness 
on the study seminar when he first brought out the teaching. This is really the first thing that one has to do to develop mindfulness and awareness. This means especially developing self-awareness, which in turn means self-integration. So this is also the stage of integration. We bring all our scattered bits together. We integrate ourselves. We overcome conflict with ourselves, disharmony with ourselves. Get ourselves functioning as a smoothly working whole, not a jumble of bits and pieces and fragments themselves or struggling and jostling for supremacy. So you can see that this is quite a big task in itself, practising mindfulness and becoming integrated in this sort of way. But this is the first stage. It really means giving birth to oneself as an integrated person, as a self-aware individual. So last week I quoted uh, T.S. Eliot, and I hope I quoted it right, but I haven't haven't checked it. Anyway, saying that uh, something like mankind cannot take too much reality, or is anybody a T.S. Eliot scholar here? Cannot bear bear very much reality. Thank you, Arimati. Good. (coughs) So already that sort of... um, our own sort of lack of integration in a sense comes out there that that we feel maybe we feel very deeply that we want to know the truth but if the truth were given to us we might not actually want it so we have you know we've got these different aspects to us haven't we we're greatly attracted to something and then when we get it we're not so sure Uh, but we hide from the truth if someone were to offer I think I said last week in my own experience if I'm offered some home truth about myself I may not uh, even if I think it's a very a creative, positive one, I may not want to receive it. Yeah, uh, we're often not integrated fully around our purposes. Um, yeah, we decide we want to go on a, a retreat. Perhaps we book on this retreat. We're very inspired to go on the retreat, and when the retreat, the morning comes for us to go on the retreat, and we're pretty tired, and you know, we're not really, we can't quite, um, you know, we can't sort of uh, that side of us just isn't there. We can't really relate to the any reason why we should be going on the retreat even you know sort of we begin to sort of perhaps talk ourselves out of it um, and isn't, often it isn't until we perhaps when we're a more disciplined aspect of us of us just says well you're just going to go and and as you start going you begin to connect don't you with um, why you thought you'd do that thing which is very good for you and uh, <coughs> there's something in us that doesn't always want to do the things that are good for us even when we enjoy them isn't it? it's a bit uh, weird isn't it but Perhaps, I don't know if you experience that occasionally, but a few nods, yeah. Yes, something that's sort of healthy doesn't seem quite so interesting as something that's unhealthy, particularly in the food line, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So without integration, well, we find it hard to follow through on things, and in particular on our spiritual practice. Um, Maybe we take up one practice, and then if it gets a little bit difficult, the tendency can be to move on to another one or you know, not follow through on it if the going gets hard. Um, and it really is through continuity and persistence in spiritual practice, as in anything, I suppose, and any um, art or whatever we're trying to develop, that, you know, that's, that's where we 
achieve results, isn't it, by sticking with something usually and not perhaps not grimly, but at least with uh, some humour and ongoing uh, uh, persistence that we actually get somewhere. So we can't commit uh, ourselves very fully to the spiritual life if we're very divided. Uh, as Ryokan says, maybe I'll say that one myself, it's quite short. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? Very succinctly put. Yeah. So, uh, what does mindfulness do? I've got a quote from Banti again. How mindfulness helps us become more integrated. So, what does mindfulness do? Even the very limited mindfulness that we practice when we do the mindfulness of breathing helps bind the different bundles of cells together. It at least tightens the string a little bit so that they aren't so loose in the middle. It makes more of a definite bundle of those different cravings and selves, more of a recognisable, identifiable bundle. And if we practice it a bit more, the practice of mindfulness helps to create real unity and real harmony between the different aspects. In other words, it is through mindfulness that we begin to develop, begin to create true individuality. Individuality is essentially integrated. Only an integrated person can commit him or herself because then all your energies are together, all flowing in the same direction. So mindfulness, awareness, is the key to the whole thing. <coughs> yes, yeah, so mindfulness is the key to the whole thing. Um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about mindfulness later on in the talk and talk mainly actually around integration, partly because um, we do hear quite a lot about mindfulness and perhaps it's, you're more familiar with the qualities of mindfulness uh, and there's a ret- weekend retreat coming up uh, next month, uh, led by Vijmala on mindfulness as well, the Satipatthana Sutta. So you might be able to dwell more on mindfulness there. Um, but I'll start with focusing more on, on the quality of integration and um, helping us into plunge into that a bit more. Yeah. So this is our task in this first great stage: is to sort of gather ourselves and uh, collect ourselves this quality of integration that's been talked about, become a smoothly working whole, which is an interesting description. Um, so it's, it's a big job. It's, uh, we don't become totally integrated until we're enlightened, apparently. So, uh, so it, we, we needn't expect immediate results, you know, of a, becoming a really smoothly working whole very quickly. Um, uh, enlightenment, um, the quality of enlightenment seems to uh, involve... It's complete fullness of consciousness of all aspects of the heights and the depths. There's no unconsciousness. So an enlightened person actually has um, is completely conscious, completely awake, which is quite an amazing thought. And as we progress through our stages of, of growth, these over these five stages, I think each stage actually helps deepen the process of integration. So we don't have to perfect this stage of integration, obviously, in order to develop positive emotion and so on. Uh, but to the extent that we are integrated, to that extent we can, in a way that we, we do become that um, positive to that extent, um, to the extent we're able to commit ourselves and uh, know ourselves, really, 
and draw on the energies that are uh, locked in in, in uh, any unconscious aspects. <coughs> so, uh, what is integration? Well, it, it's um, a state of psychic wholeness and wholeheartedness. There's a few words around it which seem to sort of flesh it out for me. Wholeheartedness. Um, we're present. There's a quality of being present with ourselves, uh, present to ourselves. We aware of ourselves. We know ourselves. It's knowing ourselves in a. Uh, there's quite a simple quality to that, and a straightforwardness to that. Um, so we might still be quite complex beings, mind you, and we might still have different aspects to us which don't always agree. But we sort of know what they are, and we're beginning to know how to work with them. Something like that. So I think in integration, it's got. Um, it's not a strictly rational. Well, it's sort of quite a complex thing in itself. This quality of actually maybe holding difference, there's unity and diversity within integration. I think. Um, and I have another poem. Um, seem to have a lot of poems. I thought the poem would bring out the sort of mythic quality of integration because we're going to move on to talking about uniting the depths and the heights within ourselves. So integration being a very three-dimensional sort of thing. Uh, so Arimati brought this very beautiful poem which we, I thought we'd, we'd have here. It's called Seven Song by John Carl Gross. Yeah, Philip Gross. He's, he's, Philip. He won the last year. <coughs> Philip Gross. The seven was brown and the seven was blue. Not this then that, not either or, no mixture. Two things can be true. The hills were clouds and the mist was a shore. The seven was water, the water was mud, whose eddies stood and did not fill. The kind of water that's thicker than blood. The river was flowing. The flowing was still. The tide rip the sound of dry fluttering wings with waves that did not break or fall. We were two of the world's small particular things. We were old. We were young. We were no age at all. For a moment, not doing, nor coming undone. Words gained, words lost. Till, who's to say, which was the father, which was the son? A week or fifty years away. But the water said earth and the water said sky. We were everyone we'd ever been or would be. Every angle of light that says you, that says I. And the sea was the river, the river, the sea. Mm, 
it's very beautiful, isn't it? I, I find even listening to poetry like that feels like it sort of draws up strands in me and I don't know about you but uh, the sense of feeling a bit richer and fuller for it and I think that's integrating in itself just uh, that quality of um, awake, sort of an awakening even if it's an unconscious sort of awakening that happens with poetry or whatever it is for you maybe it's music or writing or theatre or um, traffic food anyway who knows so, uh, yeah, so we're going to talk a bit more about integration. And uh, Sangharachita, he, he uh, describes he's, uh, two different types of integration, which he calls one horizontal integration and one a vertical type of integration. And the horizontal integration seems to be an integration on a sort of level on a, of the conscious mind. Um, it's drawing, um, well, uh, in our conscious waking day, uh, we seem to be sometimes different people. Like uh, we wake up with one one person and one mood, and then maybe by an evening we're a different person, a different mood. Um, we're a different person, maybe in different roles and activities. Like we're the the mother, or we're the student. Um, we're a musician. We're an artist. We're a teacher. Um, uh, we're maybe more rational sometimes and more emotional other times. Uh, they're all sort of conscious. You know, they don't always talk to each other. But they do, we do sort of know about them, although we forget about one when we're involved in the other often. We get, can get quite surprised, can't we, by how they crop up. And, uh, yeah, sometimes we can see these operating when we're a different person um, in different situations. It can be a bit alarming sometimes, can't it, with, a, different, with different friends, maybe different things come out. So uh, we can become more integrated on that level by just gradually getting to know ourselves and getting to know all these different aspects of our being, uh, not getting taken by surprise, as it were. And that's a sort of horizontal level of integration. And we do we have sort of blind spots, don't we? Uh, like not really knowing ourselves. And um, Yeah, so I think it can be... It's very valuable just to get to know ourselves on that sort of level. Uh, and I think the more we do that, I guess the more we f- we're freed up from conflict. If these aspects of ourselves get into conflict with each other or don't agree, then we're, in a way we're sort of, you know, uh, butting ourselves up against the brick wall, losing a lot of energy, and we haven't got this sort of feeling of all the... I suppose what we're aiming for is all our energies. Um, they may be different, different colours, different shapes, etc., but they're going in generally the same sort of direction, and there's a feeling of momentum and energy. <coughs> And I think it's easier. It's a lot easier to be ethical if we, if all those si- sides of us are talking to each other and they're on the same page, and uh, we're not bit getting taken by surprise by them. Yeah. So the second uh, aspect of this is the vertical integration, and that's where we're talking about the heights and the depths being drawn out, being drawn up, and it could be quite unconscious elements and what Bounty talks of as superconscious. Which I don't know if that's a term that's used very much. But <coughs> I think he means the sort of the heights, the aspirations, our aspirations and our visions, uh, the um, you know the higher dimensions of our of our being, our inspirations. Sometimes we feel we really dwell in them, don't we? Uh, particularly maybe in you know, deeper meditation or um, well, at particular times, we feel we can sometimes feel just immersed in something very very pure and very very beautiful. 
um, but we're not involved in it very much and it doesn't feel as though it really always flows into our day or even leads us into our day. And then we've got these depths, uh, which is a sense of a center, uh, there's a sense of descending perhaps into the depths. And I think different ones of us are attracted to the different sides actually. Uh, so some of us are more attracted to the heights and the sort of the, the sky, the purity, and others more the sort of richness of going down under the ground and exploring what's there in those uh, creative depths. I think I've been somebody who's been more comfortable with this sort of heights aspect but I've been fascinated by these sort of depths and probably through meditation in particular I've found myself um, exploring those depths uh, which I was a bit scared of actually. Um, I think I I spent quite a bit of time thinking I wouldn't like myself if I found out what was sort of down there, down in the depths, different aspects and uh, yes. So um, anyway, I'm going to talk a bit more about that sort of deeper exploration in a minute. But... Yeah, I think I think we can gather a lot of riches through exploration of these heights and depths, and get to know ourselves and um, get to know ourselves at our best and at our most powerful as well, at our strongest. So, the, and the depths contain memories, don't they? Memories that sort of can bubble up and very deep conditionings and feelings, emotions. The realms of the myth and the imagination are there. <coughs> yes. And <clears throat> it can be surprising or um, painful, beautiful and mo- moving and confusing. <clears throat> <Yeah. coughs> Voice is still going, I think. It's getting a bit gurgly. Gurgling down into the depths. <laughs> it's, it's that river image. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so through these depths they may uplift us uh, or we might just feel quite turbulent, actually, and really shaken up by it. It um, might be something quite unexpected. But if we stay with what arises and um, follow through, sometimes there's something to follow through, particularly on a memory. Or uh, I know myself in meditation, deep meditation, sometimes I, what comes up is um, a regret, a sense of something I've done that I feel regretful. And I do need to do something with that sometimes. I need to maybe make a confession or certainly acknowledge it to myself. Uh, and there's a lot of pain until I realise, like, oh, I can do something. I can, I can you know, maybe write to that person, or I could do a ritual, or whatever it's been. And and then there's a sense of letting go that comes with that. <coughs> so there's a, a sense of actually needing to follow through on what arises in meditation. Yeah. So the, yeah, this process process of integration is a uh, fascinating and. Um, it's like the whole of our lives, really, the whole of our lives. And it's to do with waking up, waking up to ourselves. So I have another poem by Rumi this time, which is all about this. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill, where the two worlds touch. 
The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Yeah, so maybe that's it. Integration is waking up, waking up to whatever is there, actually. You can't guarantee what's going to be there. Um, then I thought, well, this could be fun to make a list of sim- symptoms of lack of integration. I thought mm-hmm. it's quite... <coughs> I could do a little brainstorm now, couldn't I? But wouldn't be able to get through the mic. But anyway, I'm going to tell you my, my brainstorm. Um, so I thought... It could be when we feel we don't know ourselves and we find ourselves doing uncharacteristic things, as we think. That might be a sense that something else is coming through. But when we're distracted and we're not present and our mind is elsewhere and maybe we're in fantasies or dreams, that's when we're being pulled back into something. When we're inconsistent, we're different with different people uh, or in different situations. We feel divided, um, and that can lead to tiredness. Actually, sometimes just feeling tired and drained is a symptom of this. It's a symptom of um, something pulling at us from deeper down that we're not looking at, we're not paying attention to. So there's inattention and conflict. When we feel very spread thin, you know, very thin and a bit superficial, or very much on the surface, as though things are all happening underneath, but we don't know quite what they are. <coughs> or oh, nothing's happening underneath. That's, that's a bit more. That's more as I experienced actually. Yes, uh, I'll tell you later. But I, ha- I've had many years of very uh, deep lack of integration, feeling completely stuck and a bit sort of pale and lifeless. So I think that's one of the signs of integrate lack of integration too, being a bit pale and lifeless. Yeah, when we find ourselves rejecting aspects of ourselves or judging ourselves harshly. Uh, not owning aspects of ourselves, trying to be someone we're not. It's another of my favourite ones. Um, yeah, being un- unable to forgive ourselves. Yeah, there's, I think all of those are coming through from this lack of integration. So I, I thought we could, if we wanted to, we could ask ourselves now or later on some questions. Uh, are there aspects of myself that I ignore or don't want to engage with or I don't like? Sort of what are those? Would I feel more whole or more human if I did engage with any of those? What do I need to do to restore or replenish my humanness to be more integrated and complete? Another last question, am I developing one-sidedly? Which is an interesting thought, isn't it? Um, there's that, actually, I didn't bring that into this talk, but there's a teaching called the Five Spiritual Faculties, which looks at how we develop spiritually in a balanced way. So that's something balancing uh, faith and wisdom and energy and meditation through mindfulness. But there's, uh, yeah, are we, are, am I feeling lopsided? Am I enjoying feeling lopsided? Maybe I should stay that way. So we, we're not looking to iron out character traits, by the way. It's, um, more, it's more becoming really ourselves that we're trying to aim at through integration. Oh, we've got another poem by Rilke.
You are not dead yet. It is not too late to open your depths by plunging into them and drink in the life that reveals itself quietly there. Can I read it again? You are not dead yet. It is not too late to open your depths by plunging into them and drink in the life that reveals itself quietly there. In the next series, next section of the talk, I thought I'd just uh, tell you a little bit about my own experience of working with lack of integration over many years. I um, thought it might be, uh, what's the word, encouraging, <laughs> perhaps, appalling, currently encouraging. Um, so different aspects I've, I've worked with over the, over the years. So the first one, yeah, trying to be someone I'm not, I th- it's a funny thing to try and do when you look back on it, isn't it? Or uh, not even looking back on it, really. But uh, it's, it's quite a hard thing to even see that you're doing because it's so, it, these things are so unconscious. But I think for myself, not really liking who I was and maybe liking how other people were, there's a sense of trying to sort of emulate people in an um, ungrounded sort of way, I guess, without really developing, without developing the qualities, but um, without really owning one's own qualities. So I think it's just so important to uh, get to know what our own qualities are, isn't it, and our own strengths. And uh, that, for me, that's just been something that's taken very many years, years and years and years, and still in process very much. Um, so, yes, I think there's this thing about not wanting to be who I was, which is, is really quite... So you're sort of... You're being, in a way, you are being who you are, but you're undercutting it at the same time. So you lose a lot of energy through doing that and block a lot of energy. Yes. So I, th- I think actually what helped, uh, even right when, when I very f- first started meditating, I think I said last week I, um, well, I came along to meditation classes because some friends were coming along. I'm not sure, uh, and if I'd known what meditation was, I thought I wasn't sure if I would have actually chosen to do it. Because it, I, when, if, when I discovered it involved sitting there with your eyes closed and being aware of yourself, it wasn't something I was attracted to. And um, that was partly because, uh, I don't know, I, was, uh, I think I, I and maybe many of us, that we're so used to hiding from our experience by doing many things at once. So I would, I think I would quite often, when I got home from work, I would, you know, have a cup of tea, maybe I'd light a joint or something, I just smoke a lot of dope. I'd watch TV, listen to music at the same time. Maybe there'd be a friend there. Perhaps I'd have a snack. You know, it'd all be happening at once. The cat would be on my lap. It was just um, the idea of just doing one thing or nothing was quite would have been quite strange, and I think I would have been afraid of meeting myself actually. So I actually sort of landed in meditation uh, without knowing that that's what we were going to do, and it was okay, just like that. I thought, oh, this is all right. I, I can do this, and. I think I imagined as I meditated more, I might find darker sides of myself, which I'd like even less. Uh, but that wasn't how it was. It was more like, uh, yeah, finding lots of jewels as well as, you know, there's obviously there's some harder things that arise, but um, it was an you know, the encouraging thing to actually find out what was really there. Yes, and a sense of potential. Yeah, I think I felt I recovered a, 
sort of child, my childlike um, aspirations, a sort of sense of wonder. So I think there's a real role for the imagination, isn't it, in, in integrating ourselves as well. Yeah, something I used to do was, and uh, um, trying to understand myself, I think, and get below some of my experiences. My, I found it very difficult to open my heart and sort of feel uh, strong emotion or any emotion sometimes. In fact, when I first came to meditation classes, I wasn't sure what the difference was between an emotion and a thought. And a thought. So I was only 25, and uh, <coughs> as if that would, but I was I was pretty unconscious. Uh, anyway, something I used to do in the metabhavana sometimes was take a journey into myself. I would actually imaginatively journey into my heart sometimes, um, and just try and sit in my heart and be with myself in that sort of way. And I remember uh, finding different creatures or beings, and once found found a very young, lonely uh, girl in my heart who was just sitting there and that it's sort of imprisoned in a way and just going to sit with her and um, being able to reassure her so actually sort of bringing metta in that, that way I think we can we can find all sorts of strange and weird and wonderful beings in our psyches when we drop down into ourselves so in a way they're all aspects aspects of us um created by our lives or created by our attitudes to ourselves so, so it can be very um, so I found sort of tr- tr- uh, you know engaging with the depths very um, invigorating actually on the whole scary sometimes so another um, thing I used to try and I think I yeah definitely used to do this thing about trying to be a good Buddhist um, trying to be a what, what a Buddhist would be like and so I had this image, obviously, of what a Buddhist would be like, sort of um, calm and collected and compassionate, um, that sort of thing, equanimous in most situations. And so I, w- I think I would try to sort of eradicate things that didn't quite go with that, like, you know, more difficult emotions. Um, so there is a danger of, of getting into do-gooding, isn't there, if we have an idea of what a Buddhist is, um, I think it's worth looking at whether we feel, you know, in becoming Buddhists, there's any pressure on us to be any particular way. Because if we feel that, then that can undercut our who we are, in a sense. We can become a bit superficial as well, if we're trying to be something that we're not, just to, in a way to fit in or to, uh, uh, yeah, be as we think we should be. We can lose touch with who we really are and feel... Uh, um, when it's quite a strong a force in us, actually. <coughs> uh, it's not as though, to the other extreme, isn't so great either, too. It's not as though we ought to sort of be ourselves at our... But it is quite, the question is, what does it mean to be ourselves, isn't it? Not we don't, don't want to be ourselves at our worst uh, either. But we, we, yes, it's a bit like uh, holding that in balance, being authentic to the heights and the, the depths of ourselves. And we get other people saying that too. I remember my sister saying to me, uh, I thought Buddhists were meant to be compassionate. <laughs> so, oh dear, let the side down again, sort of thing. Yeah, and I said, well, uh, this thing about Buddhists aren't perfect, are they? And uh, I don't think I remembered to say it at the time. I think I snapped something back in an irritated fashion. 
at that point. <coughs> the the uh, Bounty said something quite helpful. He, he was saying about exemplification, because in a way we, we want to exemplify, a bit like being a Buddhist, you want to really exemplify something um, that is of benefit and of value, don't you, in, in a sense, even though maybe you don't really feel up to it. Uh, but he was saying you don't. We nobody needs to exemplify any particular level of spiritual development to exemplify Buddhism. The main thing is to exemplify the process of practicing the Dharma. You're exemplifying the process of trying to, um, yeah, you're trying to get to know ourselves and trying to work with our unskillfulnesses, whatever. So uh, and being as honest and uh, real as we can with humility. And I think I found it myself, like um, confessing and apologising for mistakes. I can, I actually feel, I feel more impressed with somebody who's able to do that than than somebody who is trying to be perfect and mm. you know trying to sort of hold that sort of sense of perfection. It's moving, actually, isn't it, to, to see someone having the courage to be real? So I, I think we can have confidence that we haven't got to be. Uh, perhaps no one's trying to be a perfect Buddhist anyway out there but uh, we have, don't have to worry about trying to do that to be accepted just to be ourselves and then the next one here uh, yeah working with deep emotional patterns and habits in my experience well I've mentioned a couple of them already really um, let's see well, yeah, I was just going to say, actually, there's um, yeah, there's a danger we can perhaps have in meditation when we come up against a, a negative emotion that actually isn't very easy for us, um, such as well, or resentment or um, jealousy or craving, uh, just to try and sort of overlay it with something more positive. And again, I think that's... I think that's a very a disintegrating thing to do, to try and catch that if we find ourselves doing that. <clears throat> for example, we uh, we sort of try and repress something and then cultivate metta on top of it. It's sort of rather a queasy thing to do. You've got this something that's sort of still swirling around, really. So uh, ideally... Um, well, I was thinking about a, a model actually from Padmasambhava, who is a, a great teacher, uh, Buddhist teacher, who went to Tibet to teach the Dharma there. And he's a bit, a bit mythic, actually. It's hard to know whether he really lived or whether he's a mythic sort of figure um, but he, he he's famous for conquering demons in Tibet helping the Dharma to take root in Tibet and he didn't conquer the demons by slaying them he conquered them by getting to know them and uh, getting to know the true name of the demon getting, uh, getting a quality of its heart uh, and then when he'd actually got to know the, the demon he would ask the demon to take an oath to be a protector for the Dharma, so use his energy, the energy of the demon, to, uh, as a force for the good. So there's a, something in there that we can do ourselves in terms of just trying to sort of bring along that energy, uh, the energy of whatever the, of the, um, our demon is. So not sort of wiping it out, uh, not slaying it like a, a dragon being slain. I mean, it's quite interesting to have a few dragons, isn't it, in the psyche? And uh, actually, the, sometimes uh, there's also sayings, not the, I can't quite think of one around demons, but that the bigger the lump of the clay, the bigger the Buddha. So 
So the lump of clay being the sort of mass of uh, confusion and negative emotions. So uh, it's it's uh, great to be able to, if we can, uh, tame it or well, perhaps not tame it even, just bring it all along with us somehow. Ride it. Ride the dragon. Um, yes, I've got a couple more things here. Uh, I won't say quite so much about them as time is probably is going on very fast. So yeah, feeling blocked. I used to be. I used to feel very, very <coughs> shy and blocked for quite a while. Um, yeah, I thought I'd just say a little bit about about that because when um, I used to get this feedback from people who'd say, "Oh, you're really blocked," and I think, "Great, thank you." What, what can I do about that? It was a bit like I, I was so sort of sometimes a bit scared to sort of be me, I think, and so I didn't express things, and I wasn't quite sure how to get out of that. I'm very shy, and I, I, I um, after a while, I decided to. This is when I was quite early on in my practice, and um, I realised it would probably help me to to spend more time with other Buddhists. And uh, yes, so I joined a, a a business that was run by Buddhists in London. It was a whole food cooperative, and there was a team of us working there. And so we had. It, I just felt as though it'd be very good for me to have more time developing friendships and just getting to know myself, my emotions a bit more. Um, so every day, every morning, when we came to the shop in the morning, um, we would have this thing called reporting in. Uh, so we'd all stand in a circle or so, and we'd have a couple of minutes just to say how we how we were that morning. And I would never know how I was um, because I hadn't got a clue what was going on in me, really, and I felt a bit blank. I was always a bit blank. And this was very embarrassing after a while. So I took two sort of writing notes in advance. If something cropped up, I'd think, oh, I'll write that down. I'll say that when I come to the meeting. And actually, it was very helpful to be doing that. And it, it sort of took me off the um, hot seat. But also, uh, I began to get to... I think I would just... I'd know things and I'd just forget them. So I would just begin to remember them a bit more. And then I, then I took to, on the bus journey to work and back, I would just sit and close my eyes and just wait for things to bubble up into my consciousness, just to try and find out what was there, really. Um, yeah, I was really very unaware. And it really did help. I sort of did that every day <coughs> for ages, at least a year. And uh, I think I did gradually, did gradually become more sort of, I don't know, and something got a bit going in me. Yes. And the other thing was I used to have a lot of sadness. Um, beginning to sound like quite a bit of a case here, aren't I? Anyway, I used to, <laughs> I used to have a lot of sadness. And uh, I used to think of myself as a sad person. Uh, I didn't really understand it or where it, sort of in a way where it came from, what to do with it. And I really didn't like it in myself either. Um, I, I, I remember actually... Uh, Yes. Well, I used to spend a lot. I used to spend time sort of somehow looking in, looking for it, looking for the source of it in my meditation, sort of going underneath things and around things, and uh, and there was quite an element of. I used to pretend I was happier than I was somehow as well because I didn't think it was acceptable to be sad like that. And actually, one day I had a really helpful conversation with a friend of mine who said that uh, sadness wasn't boring at all. And later on, I've been, you know, which really helped. I thought, oh, maybe she doesn't find me boring when I'm sad. Um, and then I began to realise actually there was a lot of depth in sadness, and a lot of beautiful poetry came from sadness. And then I, it, it, it sort of liberated something in me, a, a sort of a, a view about myself. 
which was really damaging. Um, and I think for myself, a lot of rich insight has come from the sadness that's been there. And um, I've I've actually developed a much more metaphor as re- relationship with it. I think, and yeah. <coughs> and then later on, I think I realised I began to see that sometimes it was when I held myself back that I became sad. My energies were being stuck, and when I actually let my energies flow and was more spontaneous, I was happier. So that different things happened, and I began to just sort of learn how I worked. So yes, may we accept ourselves for the unique beings that we are, yeah, and not judge ourselves too harshly. Easier said than done, isn't it? But that's yeah, it's my it's an aspiration, really. Yes, yeah, so I was sort of thinking. Uh, had an image of a tapestry. I love tapestries, a sort of richness of these interwoven um, colours and threads and materials. A bit like that the we are each a tapestry. We are we ha- we are a tapestry of ourselves. A, a sort of multicoloured, multi layered, multi dimensional tapestry. So that's something to think about, what sort of tapestry we might be, or perhaps you don't relate to tapestries, but uh, it could be a painting. Um, or it could just be a music, a tapestry of music. Yeah. So perhaps we're at the loom weaving our tapestry, this tapestry of ourselves. And yeah, I was thinking sometimes when I'm, I think I said earlier, when I'm listening to music or poetry, I have this feeling as though the tapestry is expanding and I'm sort of, I definitely am. There's something quite mythic going on. I'm weaving something together. Uh, something deep in my psyche is feeling recognised, relaxing and opening. <coughs> and I think myth and legend can have a very uh, engaging effect too for the psyche. Actually, I'm, I know I'm talking quite a bit about the, d- the descent aspect of integration, but that's just sort of how it is for this talk. There's, um, there's, I think it's harder to talk about the heights, actually, sort of ascending to the heights. Um, but I think we do that quite a bit through through meditation particularly and reflection um, but uh, and sometimes they're not so different it's interesting isn't it Just perhaps when we go into the depths we actually do meet the heights it, the, the two things come together hmm. reading Mahayana Sutras I'm not sure if anyone if you all come across Mahayana Sutras great sort of stories from the Buddhist tradition Sort of coursing in the world of the archetypal, I think that all helps. Um, it's very rich. It draws in different strands of our being, and we could we can get to know Jung's series of archetypes, which I don't know much about at all, really. <coughs> so I won't say anything about them, but they're just sort of archetypal aspects of that we can cultivate and uh, recognize. Yeah, so I think just like this sense of weaving strands of water or weaving mm-hmm. music and tapestry, the process of integration is a, is a, a gentle and a subtle one, really. Uh, it's one of exploration and it's not really creating, it's more discovering, it's listening and engaging with what we find in ourselves. It's not uh, making anything different than what it really is. It's, it's um, letting the unknown come towards us and be recognised and sort of engaging with that and uh, trying to do it without expectations so that we really do see what's there, not trying, not controlling. Because um, 
we, each of us as individuals, we're actually in an incredible, incredible sort of multifaceted mandala or tapestry. Um, very, very complex. We're um, there's far, far more to us than than we can even we can even know. So we we need need to look for our own ways to let that speak to us, let that unfold in us. So that there's, a mandala is another a very uh, powerful image of integration, I think. Um, it's, often, it's a little complex and beautiful form that's arranged around a focal point. There's always a central point to a, a mandala, and often you get this sense of balanced aspects around this central point. Have people, <coughs> people seen mandalas? Um, this, you get these very beautiful Tibetan mandalas. Uh, yes, we're surrounded by mandalas, of course, in this Buddha centre. I forgot that. There's Fiona's mandalas all over the walls, aren't there? Yeah, very, very lovely. And they can be incredibly varied. <coughs> so a mandala is an image for harmony. Uh, and I think it, it's a way of capturing diversity within this quality of unity around this, this uh, focal point. And it can include everything. So our mandala of our being can include absolutely every aspect. Um, we can, we can, it can include our contradictions and our complexities. So the focal point of our mandala is, um, would be our leading value or our aspiration, the thing that sort of pulls us together, the, the thing that's the most important thing in our lives, really, uh, whatever that is. And it's around that really important quality or um, whatever that is that all the other aspects find their place. And some, some aspects will be nearer the centre of the mandala and some aspects will be further away in the periphery and some will be bigger, relatively bigger, some will be relatively smaller. So, and Banti said that we, need, we do need a sort of guiding principle or a central momentum that brings all those parts of, along, of ourselves along with it, those focal points. So that sort of clarifying that focal point is quite important in helping the mandala sort of shake into place. Have you ever seen those kaleidoscopes <coughs> that you sort of you shake or you turn and um, they're, they're just different every time you, you do that? And so the mandala of us would, would be something that changes probably all the time as we get to know ourselves and uh, perhaps the, the relationships between the pieces will, will just shift around all the time. Um, Banti mentions that it could be that it could be one of our bundles of selves. You know, we've got all these bundles of selves um, tied loosely with a bit of string and one of them might be a bit brighter uh, than the others and that might be the, the one that would actually be the leading edge of our spiritual life the leading edge of our mandala yes so we could reflect on what that might be for us um, we can play with drawing our own personal mandala um, so it's taking some time to um, sort of just draw out a mandala think what, what we would put at the centre and what would be around it and how things would be arranged. It might be that our lives have, have a whole series of intersecting mandalas, a sort of mandala of work and a mandala of friendships, a mandala of whatever. But there's also, there needs to be some sort of greater mandala, overall overarching mandala that contains the lot. <coughs> yeah. So Banti, um, in Wisdom Beyond Words, actually, you'll find, I think it's a section, maybe called The Greater Mandala, 
of aesthetic appreciation, something like that. It's very, very beautiful. It's very, very beautiful. He, he talks about uh, there that uh, everything, ideally everything we do would be held within this greater mandala of appreciation and beauty, uh, which holds our highest values. Um, so even the most mundane thing that we do would have its place within that somewhere. And so uh, then, yeah, even the most trivial thing, job that we do, becomes meaningful because it's part of, we see how it relates to the whole mandala. Yep. So a uh, couple more poems from Rilke. Sorry, sorry, it's rather long, isn't it? How are you all getting on? Not to have a leg stretch or anything. <coughs> not not much longer. It's um, maybe I'll cut out a little bit, but we'll have the poems by real anyway. If anybody wants to have a leg stretch, just do so. You are not dead yet. It is not too late. To open your depths by plunging into them and drink in the life that reveals itself quietly there. You see, I want a lot. Maybe I want it all. The darkness of each endless fall. The shimmering light of each ascent. I'll just end with a little section on a few experiences that can help us uh, in the integrating process, um, both in and out of meditation. I think quite a lot of what I'm going to talk about is out of meditation, in fact, um, just in our lives. So things like sitting and looking into a fire, I think, or sitting by a river, watching the river flow, looking at the sea, uh, so things, activities like that that somehow allow the associative mind just to bubble away and associations to be made, images might arise, understandings emerge without any conceptual content. So doing something like that, that just allows the mind free reign to be non-conceptual. Uh, meditation such as um, just sitting, when we just, just sit and we don't do anything, can be very good for it too actually. <coughs> then I thought of things like walking and knitting and dancing. Um, writing a journal, all sorts of different uh, activities that sort of free up our minds, free up our sense of who we are as well. Uh, doing nothing is a good one, isn't it? Very difficult. Rat Laguna tried to get us all to do nothing in a class here a few weeks ago, didn't he? And we were all a bit perplexed as to what exactly he meant. He said, don't meditate, <coughs> do nothing. So let anything that allows memories... Um, to bubble up I, I was thinking sometimes um, perfumes and scents uh, can be very evocative or just seeing how light falls on a piece of wood uh, or on a stone I don't know, it's, it's little simple things like that that we're just watching an insect walking across uh, a long piece of grass they can, I don't know why it is but these simple things can somehow allow very deep experience to happen in us I think so and I was, you know, modern life can be so alienating, can't it? It's, uh, 
with its artificial environments and there's this, this <coughs> fast pace which is meant to make life simpler and has made life much more complex. I do remember the advent of computers and email and how people were saying how much how helpful it, all, it would all be and uh, uh, we haven't got to the point of realising somehow and that it's getting worse and worse. More and faster sort of spiral of everything. So we and we're all a bit distanced from even making things these days, aren't we? Like making things with our hands, which is so grounding. Anyway, I could go on about all that, but uh, we I think just contact with the elements, the naturalness is is very integrating. But essentially, um, in anything that we do, I think the essential factor is just being in and with our experience of whatever it is that we're doing. That is what's integrating. It's actually being in our experience, uh, not viewing it from a distance, but actually experiencing and feeling our feelings. <coughs> so that's the sense in which awareness integrates. It brings things to consciousness. So that's the key to the whole stage, really. Anything that cultivates awareness is, is the key to integration. Um, quality of being present in ourselves. Um, yeah. I think in meditation, if we want our meditation to help us integrate, it's important to allow for that quality, that process to happen and not narrow down too quickly to concentrate ourselves. I think that can be a, a bit of a tendency that we may have, or I certainly had, being a bit goal-oriented in meditation, where you sort of try to push away different aspects of yourself and focus down in, a, in what becomes a quite a narrow way, just maintaining quite a narrow um, grip on the psyche, Um, and then the psyche becomes narrow basically so I think we need we need breadth and also we need some focus in our meditation we need the quality of both to go forward so it's a quality of acceptance um, and also movement yeah so the quality of sort of searching in our experience one of curiosity curiosity and gentle persistence um and having an open, childlike approach, of open view of things. Um, so trying not to change our experience by overlaying it with our expectations. I know this is, this is all other major stuff because we overlay everything with our expectations. But anyway, we can sort of try occasionally to drop expectations and just try and see things more freshly. And I think through all this, actually, we do... Uh, it is through all this, this um, openness to ourselves and that we relax and settle into ourselves and a natural, real natural concentration emerges. We really do dwell in our, our mandala of our being and that mandala um, settles and is naturally you know, very alive and very absorbed and very happy. Um, I really like this saying, I think it's Bante's, that the um, happy mind is a concentrated mind and the Concentrated mind is a happy mind. Um, so we, the pr- I think this path to integration can be a path to happiness and also a path to concentration. So and essentially, my last word here, before we'll have a Rumi poem again, is we're just aiming to wake ourselves up. Wake ourselves up, notice ourselves, listen, whatever, and whatever helps us to do that is going to be good. It's been what we need to do.
It's, um, well, second last word. Preparation. So this is the stage of preparation in the, in the Tibetan tradition. It's called the stage of preparation. Um, preparation is 95% of the job, isn't it, when you're decorating a room. Then you've got this little bit of paint that goes on at the end. So, um, but it, things can begin to look worse. I just thought I'd better say that. As, as we begin to stri- strip away the, um, the, the, uh, the paint and the, uh, you know, the old paint, the wallpaper, and all the holes appear and we have to fill the holes and things begin to look far worse before they look better, don't they? And it can take a while, but then suddenly you've got this lick of paint and it looks beautiful. So spiritual life is a bit like that and that's integration is that preparation. So, oh, last poem. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill. Where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep.